TikTok live. We normally do this at 3 p.m., but I had some changes to my schedule. If you got questions, uh, we're going to get started in a minute. People are joining. It's just going to get straight into ask me anything. So anything about business, uh, the small business questions that we've been getting have been so uh, really awesome. So anyone that owns a small business has been thinking about starting a small business. We had a question about a local bike shop last week that I thought was a lot of people listened to it said was really valuable. So anything small business related, I can definitely help there. Entrepreneurship like more like SaaS, demand gen marketing, getting your career together. There's tons of different areas where I'm open to helping here. So it's like what it says in the thing, ask me anything, like feel free to go in any direction and we'll get it. Here's one right here while people get ro- get rolling in here. I tend to be tactical. Any advice on how to think more strategically to get promoted? 100%, no matter what role you're in, whether you're the chairman of the board, whether you're a marketing manager, whether you are a finance admin, whether you are an SDR, whether you are the VP of revenue operations, it doesn't matter what your title is. The mindset needs to be thinking about, I always think like the CEO or what would I do if I was the CEO? And it's going to train your brain to elevate and get out of the tactical stuff, right? Okay. Like what our CPC was on this ad, does our CEO care about that? Definitely not, right? So it's going to elevate you out of the tactical and say, what is going to matter to this person? And it helps you really start to think. I've been doing this since 2012. It forces you to think strategically and it forces you to elevate as a professional. And then you go out and you say, okay, I don't understand finance. I don't understand fundraising. I don't understand gross margins. And you have to go out and figure out those things. You study and you learn. And all of a sudden, Seven years later, two years later, a couple years later, you have way more skills and you look at the business, even though you're a marketing manager, you look at the business like a CEO, even though you're a marketing manager, you have a lot of skills and experience to actually advise or take on that type of role. So um, the easiest way is to think about what would I do if I was the CEO in every situation? What are your thoughts on mission-driven marketing, supporting causes customers care about? So um, I am I am not that educated on this subject, although I'm starting to learn more and I'm going to pull some examples in. So for examples in a lot of mission-driven marketing that happens in B2C companies like, oh, buy a pair of socks and we'll donate a pair of socks to someone or, um, you know, buy this water and we'll donate 17 waters to Africa or any of these mission-driven things. Um, there's a lot of elements in here that are one it's, they're not actually mission driven. They're just raising the prices enough to give away it and then be able to support something. So yeah, there's a certain amount of people that would, but they're not really mission driven. They're profit driven and using the mission as an excuse to charge more money. There's another effect that I don't understand that well, but I'm starting to understand it more called greenwashing, which is that a lot of businesses, um, over exaggerate their impact on climate change in order to use it for marketing materials. And there's tons of businesses out there that are talking about how there's there's zero emissions or different things like that. And it's really, um, when you actually look down in the details of what's happening, there's a lot of companies that do what I call greenwashing. Um, generally though, like having a business that has a mission that customers care about is absolutely critical. I just think that companies choose missions in, in potentially disingenuous ways that benefit them. 
So like our, our mission at Refine Labs is to fundamentally change how B2B companies think about, measure, and execute marketing and in the future their go-to-market strategies wholly. And so with that mission, there's a lot of people out there that love and believe in that mission. It has nothing to do with climate change. It has nothing to do with any of the other sort of like political or, or socio-political things that are going on. But there's a lot of people out there that know and have experienced for five, 10 or more years that B2B marketing is stuck. It's not moving anywhere and they are aligned with that mission. So I would just encourage people to try and shoot. Uh, when, I, when you do this, you, you get customer insights and then you derive the mission. And I think a lot of companies just derive the mission based on what they think people want and then use that. So hope that was clear. I own a small B2B cons firm looking to build marketing strategy how to shape a cons product to market. Can you, Charles, can you just tell me what a cons product is? I'm not sure what that means. Uh, and while I wait for that, I'm gonna uh, answer Todd's. What's the difference between brand awareness and creating demand? Um, so the difference between brand awareness and creating demand is brand awareness is a, is a subset of creating demand. And so um, if you think about creating demand and all the things that need to happen in order for somebody to have demand for that thing, they need to deeply understand the problem that your business solves, which is distinctly different from the brand. They need to understand the problem that the business solves. They need to connect that problem with a category of solutions. Then they're gonna connect that category to your brand then they're going to connect your brand and continue through the buying process. So as I just illustrated that at a super high level, and I'll do it more technically on a future, a future live, that brand awareness is just one step of many steps that need to happen in order to effectively create demand. And so, and another misconception here that a lot of that, that um, I'll push back on as I continue to get deeper into this and learn this stuff, right? I'm not an expert in some of these specific areas. I'm just telling you what I've learned so far is that, um, a lot of people don't a lot of buyer a lot of a lot of marketers overvalue brand awareness and undervalue category awareness or category affinity and so having people when you, when people make decisions they think i need toothpaste and then they decide what brand they're going to buy i need financial business software and then they decide what brand they're going to buy Every time you, I need some, an alternative milk and then you decide what category of alternative milk and you decide the brand of oat milk. Every time you go through it, you choose the category first. And so you're, as a business, you're really selling yourself short if you're only focused on brand awareness. You need to be driving the demand for the overall category. And maybe that's the best distinction. When you're creating demand, you are creating net new buyers for your category. And when you are brand awareness, you're making people aware that your brand exists and may be connected to an existing category that they know. There's a huge distinction there. I appreciate the question. All right, Charles, we're back. I think this is a consulting. So Charles's question, I own a small B2B consulting firm looking to build marketing strategy, how to shape a consulting product to market. We specialize in data analytics. Charles, this is a great question. I did this like it was three years ago when it was just me. Refine Labs was built in my in the living room of my apartment. Had nobody worked here. We maybe had two or three customers. And so at the beginning, you're going to have a hypothesis. You need to have a hypothesis based on customer insights about what people are struggling with and what people are willing to pay for. 
And so you have to have some, in order to start the business, you have, to, you have something in there that's about that. And then so you have to go and work on trying to get a couple of customers for there and to figure out, are these the right types of customers? What, what do I need to mold about this product? What did, what worked and what didn't work? I think there's a big level of experimentation here that needs to go on. You can do some of that by actually doing the work on customers. You're effectively getting paid to do R&D for your consulting firm. And another way that you should do it is you should do it through content and community. So you should be putting out your thoughts about data analytics, where that's going, what people think that they're doing that they think is smart, which is really dumb and why, and, and go through all these different things. Because when you put out the content, you attract people that already believe in it. And when you attract the people that already believe in it, you might find, wow, there's a specific segment of customers that I didn't expect that I would have never go gone after as a, as a marketer. And these are the people that need my stuff. It's the same thing that happened to me in SaaS. We weren't targeting software as a service companies in, in the middle of 2019. We weren't. And then what happened was over and over, software as a service companies had affinity to the overall message because they have high gross margins. They're investing significantly in customer acquisition. They spend significantly on marketing and media on and, and digital media, which is different than manufacturing companies, finance, and a lot of other sort of businesses out there. They have a recurring revenue model business. They're already like thinking about social. There, there was a lot of dynamics as to why a software as a service customer is a good customer for us in hindsight, but at the beginning, it wasn't that clear. So I think that doing some projects with cust whatever customers that you can get to fund R&D for your product, and the goal is to eventually productize that somehow, and then to put out a bunch of content that attracts people or lets, helps people understand effectively creating demand for your analytics solution. Marketing at my org is all sales enablement, case studies, testimonials. How do we pitch demand creation to leadership? So um, when I, uh, in 2017, I joined a company and to them, marketing meant uh, they had a part of the marketing team. There was like four people that was for product marketing and product management. So the company I came for, product marketing and product management, decide the price decide the product roadmap, right? So this is a different org structure, but I think it's actually a very appropriate org structure for marketing. So you got these product marketing, product management team of four people that's working on the product roadmap and the pricing and stuff like that. And then you got a four person team that was called basically the go to market team, but that team is mainly focused on sales enablement and like other lead gen activities like webinars, trade shows. We didn't even do eBooks, right? So that type of stuff in 2017. So basically, my job on that go-to-market team was to build sales enablement materials, do better sales training, and go to big sales meetings. So fly across the country to go to a big sales meeting. That was my job. And I did that job for like 90 days. And I would go to the meetings, and I would go to a first meeting, and we would do stuff, and nothing would happen from it. And I'd keep going to these meetings, and I'd be like, like we're talking to a, we're going, I'm going flying across the country from Boston to San Diego to go with our rep to a first time meeting with some San Diego hospital. And I'm talking to people that don't want to buy from us, right? This is, a, and it, it was a huge realization. This is a complete waste of time. And it's not just a complete waste of my time. All 40 of our reps are doing the same shit, right? So all of our reps are going to these meetings with people that don't want to buy. This is super inefficient. And then what I did was I started to figure out we need if 
if we educate buyers more and then buyers come to us, our sales team will have way higher quality meetings. And so, and then from there, you can look, slice the business data. The symptoms of this problem are low win rates, short, uh, low win rates, long, long sales cycles, not a lot of reps hitting quota. So less than 60, maybe even less than 50% of reps hitting quota. Um, clear sales and marketing alignment issues. You're not driving a bunch of demand through your website. Like these are some of the symptoms. So um, once you have all that data, the, the, like the thing for me, and I'm just going to be really transparent for you. I'm like, the thing that's going through my head right now is that you're probably not going to convince the company that you work for to do this. When I tried to convince the company that I worked for to do this, I had to put myself in positions for two years straight that would risk me getting fired almost every month because I believed in it so much. And I just know that there's not many people that are willing to put their put their career, put their neck on the line for that type of stuff when they don't have this level of the level of conviction that I do having talked to all those buyers and seen the problems in the business. Um, so I'm not, I don't, I'm not uh, 100% confident. What I did was I continued to provide data and insights and qualitative customer research and things like that, continued to provide that to leadership on an ongoing basis and said, this is how our, we surveyed 500 buyers. This is how our buyers want to buy. We went to these seven meetings with children's hospitals. These are the things that those people said that are patterns. Our sales cycle life continues to get longer when we have out, cold outbound meetings booked by SDRs. I'm continuing to surface qualitative and qualitative customer insights, quantitative customer insights, and quantitative business data that all support the direction that I'm trying to get the business to go. And another thing is that in order to make this change happen, you really need to think like a CEO. If you're thinking like a marketer, this is definitely not going to work. You need to think about the, the person and the team that are above the marketing team, the product team, the sales team. How is this, how, what is it going to mean for this person to make all that stuff work? Should B2B companies have a strategy specifically for review sites? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, I think so. When you break it up, this is going to review sites is basically capturing demand. Right. If, if someone's going to a trust radius or a G2, demand has been created and they're in some level of exploratory phase to figure out, is this the right category for me or is there a different category than I expect? And what product or company should I choose within the category that I've selected? To be clear for people, the only reason people go to review sites is because they know no company created demand in the first place. If there was a company that already created demand, they would just go to that company. Think about when you buy. The only time that you go and you make a Google search or you go to a review site is when you don't have a preferred company that already created demand for that category for you already. If you already knew that company, then you just go to the Google, type in their brand and go. And then maybe you go back to a review site later and use that to validate your decision by looking at the reviews. But most often you're gonna validate your decision in dark social and in communities with with real people that you trust, not a thousand reviews on trust radius or G2 that can easily be gamed and manipulated, right? It's the same reason people don't trust Yelp as much anymore. And the same thing will happen to be, these types of review sites is that buyers will realize, just like they realize with Yelp, that these can be gamed, that it becomes a marketing tactic, and it's not actually what buyer what the the, the sentiment of what buyers actually think. Should you have a, should you have a strategy? Uh, if you have the resources, yes, but for me, it would be a pretty low priority.
And if let me let me also go a little bit deeper here. If you are trying to compete in an existing category, then you'll you'll skew to be more focused on capturing demand, right? So if you want to go and play in the CRM category and compete with hundreds of companies, some Goliath companies that have most of the market share, and you want to compete for that, then yeah, go and have a because there's going to be a lot of people looking for the at review sites for CRM products because there's a ton of demand created for CRM products. If you are building a new category, if you're doing something differentiated and innovative, then a review site strategy and other capture demand strategies, I think are not as uh, important. Theoretical, can I crush at demand gen and still lose because I suck at capturing demand? Um, I, I suppose, I suppose this is possible. Um, but here's what I found in my experience doing this at, at, at many different companies is that when you create the demand, what it does is it completely lowers and decreases the, 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 the skill, the, the hard to rep repeat skill sets of actual salespeople, right? So we're doing this and we're trying to sell 30K software, 100 K plus software, $500,000 professional services or SaaS, things like that. So big deal sizes with a sales team. And when you actually create the demand, it's, it's black and white. When buyers come to you and say, I want to talk to your sales team about buying this stuff right now, they are fundamentally further in their buying process than when you cold outbound somebody by a, by a mile. And when they're further done in their buying process and they've asked to talk to you, the odds of them becoming a customer go way up. And so then you don't have the reliance on what is John doing in the, in the um, NorCal territory to sell so much, right? It becomes less about the territory, the individual person, and that type of stuff. And it becomes way more normalized to who's actually selling the deals. Um, there's, it's possible that you're, like, your marketing and sales team aren't aligned and you're creating demand and sales isn't following up with them. Uh, but I would say the only place this breaks down to answer your question is in the sales part of it, right? At Refine Labs, we spend no time capturing demand, no SEO, no SCM, barely any presence on review sites. We don't use intent data because people hear about us in dark social. And then when they want to understand what we can do for them, they want to understand pricing, they want to understand all these things. They can go to our website and we enable them to get all that information that they, they need to start to understand that. We publish pricing on the website. We have different data on there. And then they can book a meeting directly and come and talk to us about working together. So um, we spend almost no time capturing demand except for the process from getting somebody that wants to talk to us. How do we get them into a meeting with a salesperson and have, them, have that be the most effective meeting that that person can spend their time on? B2B Jade, where would you start with demand creation as a small architecture practice? So um, I don't understand the architecture practice ecosystem all that well, but let me try and let me try and just go through some theoreticals with you. My understanding is that architects are working with some level of a developer, or maybe there's some an, um, an architect puts together a plan, then there's a structural engineering firm that's going to validate those plans, and then it's actually going to go to a developer or something like that. There's multiple stakeholders in here, and architects don't don't sell to architects. Um, and so what I'm thinking about here is who is the target customer, 
And for an architecture firm, it's probably a, it's probably developers, I think. And so let's just pretend, I don't know the exact, let's just pretend that the developers are the people that are going to become your customer. They're going to come to you and say, Hey, we got this much space. It could be this regulation. It could be this high. Help us get, build a beautiful building. The architecture firm will do that. And then it'll go to a structural engineering firm. So you got to think that developers are your actual customer. And then you got to, and then you got to go and talk to developers about what are the things that are not working in your job. And don't ask about the architecture thing specifically. Just ask generally, what are the things they might say? Interest rates are going up. They might say, um, you know, we can't, we're, we can't build in this area, but it's a hot market. I don't, who knows what they're going to say, but they're going to give you a lot of interesting data. And when you, so then you get the customer research, which allows you to put craft, ideally craft a point of view about what is actually important for these people and how can I, how can I shape the strategy of my firm to align with this key problem that a lot of people have that's underserved? What are your absolute musts when creating an organic social strategy? My, uh, um, my absolute musts on this one are number one, doing a ton of live Q and A's. I think that doing a ton of live Q and A's opens you up to you up to get tons of different data and insights from customers all the time. I can see the comments. I see what people's questions are. I can see when Jules followed me just now. I can see who's joining. I get tons of different insights. And because you all are asking the questions, it it essentially guarantees that other people that are like you have similar questions. So it gives you a great flow of content that you may not sit down and, and have, write, try and write through questions. You might not get to a lot of the questions that get asked here. So uh, some level of a live Q&A element. Not, number two is consistency. And so like social is a consistent, so is it is needed consistency, right? I've been posting on LinkedIn consistently since August of 2019. A lot of people think that I started like last month or they think that they could start last month and get the level of trajectory, right? Consistency matters, especially if you're doing it the right way and you're not buying followers or chasing algorithms or trying to do viral posts. You're actually trying to do it the right way inside of a specific niche where you got a lot of engagement and a lot of followers. Consistency matters. Showing up matters. Um, so I think consistency is another element. And the third one is, is prioritization of channels, right? I see a lot of people that are like, oh, we're going to post on TikTok, Reddit, Quora, da 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 because they have this like, they pick 10 platforms because they have this some idea of someone told them that you create content once and then distribute it forever and you just like go and push it out into a bunch of different things. And the truth is you only need one or two marketing channels to change your life. And there's typically somewhere between one and three at any one time that are in the prime and the best to use. And so being able to identify and prioritize those ones, which are, in my opinion, TikTok, LinkedIn, and a podcast, those three are the, the real openers right now. And if you wanted to spread that into the next tier, it would be Reels on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube Shorts. Like those are sort of, that's the, that's the landscape that I see right now. But being able to prioritize and say, we don't have enough video editors, we don't have enough resources, we don't have enough content to, to even do all these channels. So let's just do TikTok and LinkedIn, right? So being able to prioritize what are the most important things and then to make those channels really, really work. You have to be re like, you have to have social really working for it to drive your business forward. And so going from, oh, we post a couple times a week, we get some engagement to like for us, it's probably 
10 or $15 million in revenue have been generated through LinkedIn and a podcast already this year. So there is like tons, there's tons of signals that show it's really working. And there's a huge level of commitment in order to get it there. Jacob, good follow-up question here. How do you get people to show up to the live Q&A? Uh, again, this comes down to consistency and delivery, right? So um, we, we've done that every week for more than 100 weeks. We, um, and we, the one that I'm talking about here, we promote. So it happens every week, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. To, for, for the record, this is, that event has been discontinued. Last week was the last week, but we had it for more than 100 weeks. It was on people's calendars. The events were really good. They delivered. So people showed up. We posted on the podcast so people could listen to what was happening at the event so they could think about whether or not they were going to go. When we were early on, we, we heavily leveraged influential people in the space in order to attract initial audience. So how do you go out and you get five people to come and be a co-host for one event that a bunch of people that are like the people that you want to go after listen to already? How do you have them be a co-host on the event? And then after five episodes, you have, sort of have a – as long as you've proven yourself that you can deliver – valuable content and a, value, a fun experience, then you sort of have created a foundation of about some people to show up. And I, I'm like, I don't think that the number of people that show up matters that much. It's so much different than what people think. People are like, I see all the time. Oh, we're doing our annual live event. We got to have 10, we got to get 10,000 people there. We're doing our user conference. We got to get 5,000 people there. And it's like, why? Like the point of me doing this right now is to answer questions create content, have a nice interaction with the people that are live and to help some people, right? It does, I'm, I'm going to do that whether there's 5,000 people here or whether there's five people here. And so there's a, and I think there's just a total confusion based on what you need in attendance of a live event for it to accomplish this purpose, which is you need enough people to be able to facilitate the questions for you to be able to create the content. Do you think turning website content into dark social is a good way to start transitioning. Uh, no, I don't. I think that they're like, you could look at it that way if it helps you get there, right? I'm, what I'm going to say, depending on how you look at it, could be transitioning website content into dark social content or just starting from scratch. It just depends on how you look at it. But when you take website content, most website content is intent-based, which means that people only look at it because they've demonstrated some level of intent that indicates that it's what they're looking for. And when you move in a dark social, that is all out the window and gone. So what you need to create is people stuff that people want without demonstrating intent. And so a lot of stuff that you see in blogs, which is basically just regurgitated transactional information, there's no point of view, there's no hooks, there's not a lot of things that make social content work. And so I think by like you could try and take your blog, pull out the, the seventh paragraph and make it into a, a Twitter post or a LinkedIn post. But what I would I would do instead is I would try and be a part of that social community, figure out who are the who's who to follow, who are the people that are engaging, what's the frequency, sort of like sort of like if you go to a networking event, it's like scanning the room. It's like, OK, who's here? Where where is the action happening? Who are the people that I want to see and I want to meet? How are people acting here? And you get, to, you get to take in the environment and then start to put your strategy together based on the things that you're seeing. Okay, it looks like a lot of people are talking about this topic. I have a perspective on that. I'm going to drop my topic into the comments and I'm going to start posting about it. I see that people really get, react negatively about to this topic. I'm going to stay away from that topic, even though I have an opinion on it. It just doesn't seem like it's going to be useful to this whole dialogue or conversation. 
I think there's a whole different way of looking at it that's, that starts with the community and the user or the consumer and you get the research there and then you completely reformulate your content strategy and you forget the stuff that you've been doing before. Forget is, a, is for impact there. You can continue to do your website content, but I, I see these as two distinctly different strategies based on whether it's intent-based content or not. What is your most effective way to convert off of your dark social content? I don't, I, uh, transformational princess, I love the name, transformation princess, I love the name. I don't try and convert people off of dark social content. I don't try to convert people at all. And this is a big difference. What I do is I educate people on important things. I present my perspective. I clearly demonstrate that I understand the problems in their business viscerally based on the Salesforce data patterns that I've seen. The, when I can say that 0.1% of your MQLs become customers in the, in the next 12 months, they can go back and look at their data and they can see, oh, it was 0.12%. This guy knows what he's talking about. I demonstrate over and over that I understand their business well, that I'm able to help them, let them facilitate their own buying process, and then I don't need to convert them, they convert themselves. And so I think like this is it's this is doing sales at scale. This is by instead of having one sales conversation where I talk to one buyer about specific things, this is doing that to thousands of people at the same time. And because of the approach that I go with it in, that I'm not intending to convert people, that I don't care whether or not you're qualified to buy from me in order to help you, that I'm not here to push my products or services that I have. That because I come into it with the right mindset, it feels genuine and it's really helpful, which is why you all stay. The problem that most people have is they try to convert off their dark social content and they try to sell. And the people that are in the live events, the people that are listening to the content, the people that are engaging in the comments all feel it. And then they say, this person's trying to sell me stuff. I'm going to unfollow them. I'm going to tune them out, things like that. So the, the most effective way to convert off of dark social content is to not try to convert. What are your thoughts on Web3's long-term impact on marketing and go-to-market? It's really funny that you asked this because I've, I've spent a lot of the 4th of July weekend getting real deep into what are, what's going on in, in specifically the blockchain, right? So I'm not like, when you look at Web3, it's more spread out. You got the metaverse, you got a bunch of stuff. I'm looking specifically at the underlying technology of the blockchain and the, the, it is a substantial technology that allows, with decentralized servers, allows so many different things to happen that are either not possible or restricted based on existing Web2 technology right now that I think is very exciting. When it comes to impacting B2B marketing strategies, I don't see this impacting B2B marketing strategies within the next five years. The only possible, and this is going to be very rare because of how businesses buy stuff, if you're a if you're a B2B company and you want to convert to selling something at the consumer level, then it's possible that you could come up with some level of an NFT or a token that grants people access to certain things and then sell people the tokens. And then those people could sell the tokens on, an, on a secondary market that, that are enabled to capture the value. The problem with selling at B2B is that if you're a B2B company and you're going to sell to Amazon, or you're even going to go to sell to the, the progressive Series A startup no B2B companies buying an NFT off of you. In that way, this is not going to impact anything anytime soon. So the one thing that I see is the possibility of using 
NFTs at a B2C level. And that's probably in the next three to five years where you could start to see that. Um, there is a, a really interesting thing called a uh, security token offering that I think is very interesting that could allow um, companies that would normally go and get VC funding to put their equity and their cap table on the blockchain and then um, through different regulations and exemptions, be able to offer their stock to a retail investor or only to accredited investors, but essentially to decentralize and take their cap table and allow people to trade the stock of a private company before an exit. The problems that exist with VC funding right now is that you need to have an exit for anyone to make money because most companies don't operate profitably and that it's it's only accessible to investors that are, have tons of money, typically VCs. And so by doing it in a different way, you can unlock liquidity for the actual stock by being able to have an employee that decides to quit the company that could sell their 35 shares for $62,000 right then and not have to wait for the company to exit in order to do so. But, so enhanced liquidity is super interesting. And then being able to have people that are not VCs, retail investors, be able to participate that at any point, not just in big VC rounds where a retail investor is not going to get get allowed. I think there's some really interesting, uh, really interesting things there in terms of how companies manage and trade their equity as a private company. I think that's super interesting. Can you name companies that are doing a good a good demand generation strategy in your opinion. So the way that I like to frame this up, cause I don't, I don't love to shout out other companies right now, unless it's very clear that they're doing a great job. And uh, so what I recommend is if, and I think what I'm going to recommend here is looking at companies that do good demand creation. Well, there's tons of companies that run a lead gen strategy and capture demand for a CRM, right? A lot of people are like, Oh, Salesforce is crushing their demand gen strategy. They're really just cap. They're really just crushing the demand capture strategy at this point. And so, in a demand creation strategy, I'd highly encourage you to just take a look at what my company is doing on a day to day basis. Just watch what we do. Watch how frequently we publish the podcast. What the podcasts are about. What the formats of the podcasts are. How long the podcasts are. When we publish content on social. How frequently. Who does it come from? Does it come from me? Does it come from somebody else in the company? Does it come from the the corporate account? How does that work on each different channel? Where are we doing the live sessions? Do we do them on LinkedIn? Do we do them on TikTok? Do we do them on YouTube? Why? Look at what my company is doing and then be able to reverse engineer. How am I going to make this work for my company? Some of the things that you're going to find is that finding a Chris Walker for your company is going to be really hard if you don't already, if you don't, you'd know you have them if you, if you did. So if you're trying to find a Chris Walker for your company, it means you don't have one in your company already, which means that it's highly unlikely that you're going to be able to find one that has this level of impact on your business. You gotta, you're going to have to find a person. You have to execute consistently. You have to figure out how to get what metrics are, are we going to have our company use? Because if we keep measuring our business based on the metrics we use right now, we'll never create demand. Right? Um, so I would just take a look in, at, at the content that we put out about how B2B SaaS companies could do it as well as just watching what my company does to generate revenue and business and demand. Is the role of traditional marketing dead or can lead gen and demand live in the same org? Um, I, I mean, it really depends on what, uh, on the, how you define traditional marketing, because for me, 
I think that almost no companies in tech operate traditional marketing. And I think it's a bad thing, not a good thing. Traditional marketing to me is executing across the four P's, product, place, price, promotion. What is the product roadmap? Why are we building these things? Who are we building them for? Price, because we've done customer research, we've done competitive analysis directly, we can figure out how to price these products based on value, not cost plus margin. Product place, uh, place, how are we going to go to market? Are we going to open up a retail store down here in this building that costs $15,000 a month in rent? Are we going to sell this in inside sales? Are we going to have a product-led motion that when we launch, we have no sales team or no sales assist support? Are we going to sell this in an e-commerce transaction? Is it going to be a recurring revenue model? All these decisions on how we actually go to market right now are not made by marketing. And then you have promotion. And so when a marketing team comes up with all those things, we've decided who, who we're going after at the beginning. We've talked to those people at the beginning. We know they have the pain point because we've talked to them. We've developed a product that specifically solves that pain point, not retroactively, not we developed a technology and now we're going back to figure out who needs this application of technology. We figure out the problem first and we built the product to solve it. Because we built the product to solve it, we also were able to do a pretty clear uh, analysis of how much people are willing to pay, how much it's going to cost to build. And we made a business case that decided that we're going to build this product first. When we made the business case, what we found is that buyers actually didn't need, don't need a sales rep to buy this stuff anymore. We're going to be able to do this. We're going to be able to market it digitally. We, they were going to execute an e-commerce transaction to buy this medical equipment. And then we're going to manage a subscription for Shopify to send them the consumables and disposables, B2B. And you can just, go, and so you go through all these strategic decisions and then you get to promotion. And now that you're at promotion, you have a unique differentiated product offering business that works when you promote it. And so I think that's what, I think that's where marketing should be right now. I'm not sure why we're, we're going the wrong direction in my opinion. I think like, I think we're going the wrong direction. Marketing teams need to start operating across all those different dimensions of business and driving a business strategy. That's what marketing is. It's by taking the customer insights and building a business strategy. Saw your last TikTok on long sales cycles. How do you determine track someone is ready? They declare it to you. They tell you, right? Like a be a buyer that's buying if they're buying a Mercedes-Benz SUV, if they're going to buy a Lululemon T-shirt, if they're going to buy a hundred thousand dollar software product, if they're going to buy Refine Labs consulting offering, if they're going to buy anything, they know what to do when they want to buy it. <laughs> they go to your website, they go to your retail store, they get in touch with whoever, and they declare to you, "I am interested in buying your stuff." And the problem with B2B companies is that they can't get enough people to do that. So they have to go and call people that don't want to buy and try and sell to them. And that whole gap is created by a lack of demand creation and marketing. And they think, because this is what happened in 2011, that sales can create demand now. Sales going outbound to buyers that don't want to buy is a terribly inefficient, terribly expensive, way to create demand with buyers for a category today. It's a terribly ineffective, inefficient strategy. And so if you, in the, a much stronger one is to leverage 
digital channels in content, right? I'm not saying marketing specifically because SDRs could could feasibly do this. Marketing, product, customer success, just because it falls into a marketing category, anyone in the business can do this to go out and produce content that educates buyers on the point of view of your business, the problems that it solves and all these different things that matter. And when you actually do that effectively, tons of people in the market are talking about you. They're talking about the problems that you're solving. They have more awareness to them. More people start coming in and saying, hey, I'm interested in exploring about whether or not we can buy this stuff. And it's about being able to get the snowball rolling so that a ton of people are coming in and wanting to buy. And so that's that's really the difference. And you can see that if you look at your data on your own, any company that's listening to this afterwards could look at your data on your own and you can compare the people that fill out demo requests, how many of what percentage of those do we win and what are the sales cycle lengths? And the people that we cold call outbound, what are the percentage of those that we win? And what are the sales cycle lengths? And you'll see the effect that I'm talking about simply because the buyers that say, hey, I am ready to buy this stuff are more likely to buy. It's not complicated. Marketing Oreo, thank you. Thank you. Keeping this going. What size companies do you typically work with? Um, at Refine Labs, we typically work with companies that have more than 100 employees at their business and it can range all the way up. So companies that have a hundred or companies that have 10,000 or more. And so it has a big range and we're also introducing both new service and new product offerings in July that are going to allow a lot of other B2B companies that don't current our, our services are currently inaccessible to them to have opportunities to implement our strategy and work with our team at different price, pricing and packaging options that will, allow a lot more companies to be able to work with us earlier, set the right foundation, and then continue to grow. It'll also allow very large companies that struggle with the organizational change required of using my company to be able to use my company in a lower touch way that, that decreases the amount of organizational change required and gives them a, an opportunity to operate a strategy like ours in an enterprise environment that moves very slow. Do you consult your clients on content creation or do you do it for them? I think that it's important to create distinctions and, and into where content falls. And so like for Refine Labs, we create a lot of what I call dark social content, which takes videos recorded in live events, repackages them into the formats fit for social distribution channels, and then distributes those on micro content distribution channels like LinkedIn and TikTok while also keeping the long form content in a podcast or a, or a Spotify or a YouTube. So all the content's packaged over there. We advise for companies to do that, but we don't actually do it for them. And the reason is because most companies that try to do that fail. So it's a terrible business model, right? Most companies that try to do that will give up after a month. They won't be able to measure it. They can't get their team on board. They don't have whatever the excuses are. It's the first line item to get cut. And so like, it's a terrible business model for us. I don't like, no. So, and I provide tons of consulting on exactly how to do this frameworks, advice, experience, watching me do it. The information is all out there. So if people want to use it, they can go and use it for free. They don't need to hire my company to do that. We also help companies um, conversely with that side. We do help companies market their category and market their product. So this is much more campaign driven and thinking about how are we going to get net new buyers to be interested in our in this category to be aware of this category to understand what this category means 
spending a lot more time on that uh, to effectively create demand because what we're doing in that case is that we don't need, like my company is not going to pretend to be a, C- a chief information security officer and host the podcast for them. But we can take the messaging framework and the details that they've already created on their website, re-spin that and format it for social and market their product and their category inside of social. So there's a little bit of a distinction here between whether it's expertise driven or more campaign driven and we can definitely help on the campaigns and who knows there might be a time where we help companies with the operational details of creating dark social content but what i've seen thus far is that most companies simply can't get it off the ground and it's not because they don't have a firm helping them so uh we're not it's in my experience it's been a bad business model uh, okay, looking forward to the dry packages. We're at Series B, 10 million, so a bit early. Uh, yeah, I think there's going to be some. If you want to shoot me a LinkedIn DM um, late, uh, when we get off of this, I can uh, talk through talk through with you an option I think would be really good for where you're at your stage. This seems like there's no final questions, everyone. So it's been great to have you all here. We do this every Tuesday. We'll be back. Um, we're also going to – I think we're going to introduce one on Instagram too. So we do an Instagram Live potentially on Thursdays and talk through on that one uh specifically small business ama right so you you know on tiktok we kind of can go in any direction so it's trying to package that up a little bit more so if you own a small business or if you're trying to start your business or things like that that we'll have specific time for that on instagram for a small business ama appreciate all you all you being here love doing this can't wait to do it next time and uh hope you have a great rest of your week later Hey, everyone, really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so Thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.